Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. This episode drops during Mental Health Awareness Week, and it's something that we wanted to mark on the podcast. Today's guest is someone who spans such a broad range of specialities, including being a personal trainer, a yogi, a psychologist in training, and all-around incredible content creator. And for that reason, I thought she made the perfect guest. Shona Virtue is someone who I just adore online, and she has over 400,000 Instagram followers and is one of the most popular yoga channels in the UK. Shona, how are you doing? I'm so excited to have you here. I know you've just made the big move back to the UK from Australia, and that must feel like such a huge adjustment. So how are you settling in? Alice, I'm so stoked to be here. We were just talking before and I'm like, we will have to like make sure we don't do any overshares because I'm just so stoked to actually chat to you. Um, to be here in England is amazing. I have to say, being here in the UK, I did get sick. So I actually got COVID my, when I first landed. I did like one workout and then suddenly felt absolutely awful. It hit me so hard and I just had to stay indoors, you know, for that period of time. I was, I was indoors like for eight or nine days and then I had to quickly go to Dublin to do Wellfest. So I, I've been, it's been a whirlwind. I haven't seen many of my friends at all. And so I'm, I only just feel like I've really arrived today and I've already been here for like, yeah, really 10 days already. So COVID humbles you. Like I I cannot believe how bad I felt. I have never, I was in bed, like bed bound for days on end. It really, yeah, it really knocked me for sick. So I'm glad that you're feeling better. That makes me very happy. And look, I feel like I've been a fangirl of yours for as long as I can remember. Genuinely, for as long as I think I've been on Instagram, I've been following you. And I was trying to think about what initially drew me to your content, apart from you being stunning and beautiful and wonderful and all those things. And initially, I think it was that you really are such an authoritative voice in what is essentially a really crowded and saturated space. And you're someone who I feel really walks the talk and talks the talk in a way that I've always really respected. But I'd love to hear about how you started out on your fitness journey. I know that you were a professional athlete. You then have done lots of different things across your kind of fitness journey. So I'd love to hear about that starting point and what led you to then, I guess, sharing that online. Well, thank you for that. It was like, I mean, if I wasn't sitting by that, I, have, I do have blush on, but I'm pretty sure that I am bright red from all those compliments. So I appreciate that. Um, and the feeling is truly mutual. I have to say, so I, I guess what brought me into fitness was, um, you know, I was really young. It probably, I, I wouldn't say it wasn't consensual. My parents obviously were like, do you, you know, do you want to do gymnastics? Um, but it was something that was kind of like I, I lent into. I was part of a program called Jumping Jelly Babies, which was like a little kid gymnastics program. And I was pulled out of that to move into the um, elite training program. And from there, I was training 20 hours a week for a period of like eight or nine years. I was going back and forth to the Australian Institute of Sport, um, going to train for the 2000 Olympics, but I was too young. You had to be 13 and I was not 13. And so it got to a point where I was training so intensely that I would have to make a choice about whether I was going to continue to choose gymnastics or whether I was going to choose life. And so I actually chose life and went into a slightly different gymnastics training program, which was not the elite program. And I just found it was so hard to go from like really intense training to kind of like subtle training. I know many athletes talk about that transition where your, your relationship to exercise when you're not at this extreme level to just kind of dabble in it or even more than dabble, but just kind of half do it to what you were doing it really is quite an intense mental shift. And so I actually eventually quit because I, I was like, it's all or nothing for me. I got into dance um, and then was doing that really intensely, but because I wasn't maintaining the strength that I'd sustained in uh, gymnastics, I just pushed the flexibility. And this led me to get into yoga, which is, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it, but it was a bit of an ironic transition because I thought I was doing the yoga to try and heal these injuries, whereas in actual fact, it was actually exacerbating them. And, and that was the thing that eventually led me into strength training. And so it's just been a big kind of like amalgamation of all of these sorts of different modalities that I've experienced and trying to bring them together and acknowledging that really like 
it's very difficult to have true health when you're not diving into these, at least on a small scale, these other areas that can contribute to this kind of well-rounded health perspective. And that's, I guess, what's led me to psychology now as well. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So I know that we've probably both been on our own journey of what health looks and feels like to both you and I. And, you know, myself coming from a dance background, being very image obsessed and weight focused and, uh, you know, being in a small body was the main goal. Um, my perception of health and well-being has shifted so much over the last five years, six years, seven years, you know, really to a place where I completely have rewritten the rule book when it comes to how I feel about what I do for my own health and well-being. But hearing you go through a similar thing, it'd be really interesting now how you approach or what you would define even your own health and well-being as, what you see health as, and how that shifted from, I guess, a time when health for you was probably, am I at the gym X amount of times a week? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because it was still, it hasn't changed so much in that it's not skill-based. Like that was one of the realizations I had actually later was that when I was training all those hours, I didn't really feel it. I mean, I did. I mean, it was like exhausting, of course, because you're waking up before school and leaving school early to go back and train until the evening, like late at night until 8 p.m. And so you're just constantly training. And I didn't know anything else. Like that was life to me because I really started when I was like four years old. I think that the thing that really shifted for me in terms of my relationship to health and fitness was actually when I moved to England, funnily enough. So, uh, you know, back in 2004, uh, 14 actually early 2014 I moved to the UK I'd been living in Sydney I'd been working as a personal trainer I had a great successful business there I had a great lifestyle Alice like I was I'd wake up at 6am I'd do my first couple of clients and then I'd have this like classic break in between my first clients at that peak time and then everyone would go to work and I would have a big break until like my kind of like lunchtime people so I'd drive down I was close to the beach I'd drive down to the beach I'd go for a surf I'd like chill in the sun and whatever write a write a little blog piece for my website or something and then I'd like drive back up with the hill go back to the gym teach my clients like salty hair everything it was a great lifestyle. And my clients had similar lifestyles, I have to say. Like, you know, they were busy, they were super successful. But in Australia, that is the lifestyle. You're spending a lot of time kind of half naked at the beach, truly. And obviously, that's not everyone's life. But in Sydney, that's very much what the life was. So you can only act according to your experience and your life experience. So that was really my perspective on health and fitness was very much shaped by this aesthetically motivated um, kind of endeavor, right? And it wasn't until I moved to the UK, and I was like, okay, well, there's nothing on show here. I'm covered for nine months of the year. What's motivating me to go to the gym, if not a six pack and to show off my bod, my beach bod, right? And so, you know, and I was obviously also quite young at that point. I think I was like 25. And so I had that perspective. I was really in the aesthetics Coming here was a rude awakening for me because I had to find ways not just to motivate my clients here um, because they weren't motivated by, by nudity other than in their own There was partners. no beach to get There's to, no Shona. <laughs> exactly. It's like I'd rather go to the pub or I'd rather, you know, or I'd rather like sit in a cafe and chat to my friends. Yeah. That's not motivating to go to the gym. Why do I need to go to the gym then? Even myself. And so it was really about going, well, what's driving us? And in reality, we love to say that health is driving us, but like until you're sick, you don't really care about health. And that's the reality. So I realized that we needed to have something else that was a little bit validating. And, and for me, that was encouraging my clients to gain skills like being able to do a push-up or a pull-up or even just like adding a little bit of weight to the bar. Like it doesn't have to be mm. something so big as a push-up or a pull-up. It could just be like, hey, like last week, I last month I lifted, you know, eight kilos and this month I'm lifting 10. That's a huge jump. But like, let's just say, you know, it's just like, wow, amazing. Yeah. Like that feels good. And no one can take that away from you. That's what I find so powerful about it. So that's where my, I guess that's really, I owe it to the UK because this was where the relationship shift. This is where the virtue method came about, where I was really like, whoa, whoa, like the messaging, the philosophy, all of it really formed here in the dark, dark winters. <laughs> well, you're welcome. It's, it's a wonderful place to be. <laughs> but you know what? I really want us to chat about that. And, and, and I think that you're someone who really, I feel really straddles this conversation so well online in that you're absolutely right. And I 100% agree with you 
when I see people say, oh, my motivation to train is, you know, I'm, I'm building a body for a healthy life and I want to be 90 years old and be able to deadlift something, something, whatever. Like I, for the, for the minority, sure, I do understand that that might be their motivation, but I understand that health as a huge parameter is not the thing getting people out of bed in the morning you know, and we have to be realistic about that. And I, I have had my own sort of thoughts and feelings about this and, and sort of sway from one side to the other as, you know, we should tell people that training is great for us and here are all the health reasons why you should be doing it. But also be mindful of the fact that, you know, protecting your bones to be nice and healthy and strong is not going to be the thing that gets Susan from Sheffield out of bed on a cold winter's morning. So when it comes to aesthetic goals, you know, we've gone from one end of the spectrum where it's like only train to look great, uh, and, you know, there's something to be said for that. And, you know, I've definitely seen the dark side of that. But then we've gone to the other end of the spectrum where it's like, don't ever train for aesthetic goals, train for anything other than aesthetic goals. And what I, what I know that you do well is, is you sort of sit somewhere, I feel, and without putting words into your mouth, and maybe you can expand on this, you kind of somewhere in the middle. It's like, we can't deny that appearance and, uh, you know, the vanity aspect of training has a place, but... How do you navigate that conversation basically without um, the vanity metrics being the sole motivator? Yeah, I love your turn of phrase that I straddled this conversation really well. <laughs> I love that. Quite literally in the splits. <laughs> Quite literally in the splits. So, okay, I have got this metaphor that I like to use um, and I actually took it from this uh, wonderful lady who wrote a book called Primal Body, Primal Mind, but she was talking about it in reference to like carbs, proteins, fats. And I actually think of it from, a, I, I, I stole the metaphor and use it now for psychology and how we would think about motivation. So I would say that you're, if you're thinking about a campfire, right, what it takes to build a campfire, the visual aesthetic based goals, wanting to look a certain way to appeal to a certain beauty standard. And let's face it, like that beauty standard for the most part has some kind of normality as in like there's a, a normal distribution for what we kind of think. Obviously there are outliers. So some people, you know, want to be totally different and they find that really beautiful and other people want to be on the other end of the spectrum. And it's just, it's just a really big, broad thing. It's, and then there's this normal thing. And so that's what we often think of as like, you know, the beach body ready and all that ridiculous kind of chat. But there is, there is an element of that aesthetically driven motivation that comes from these internal, primal, biological, psychological drivers that are very difficult to override. So we can try, we can have loud conversations about it online on social media, and I think that's awesome, and we should be broadening it. But in reality, there are some elements. For example, usually they relate to how we might be quickly interpreting factors about someone's fertility. Um, and so anyway, we, we don't we could go into that later, but just to come back to my analogy, essentially we've got um, the campfire. And I would say that aesthetic goals are like kindling. So they're going to burn out very, very quickly, but they're going to burn strong. Like you kind of need it to start the fire. But your, your non-aesthetic based motivation, your skill, your health endeavors are like a log. And that's going to keep that motivation burning for you for a long, long time. Things that you and I have discovered now where we're like, oh, we love this. I love your performance-driven training now. I love watching it. I like, honestly, you're first in my stories and ever, I'm always watching it. I'm like, is she, is she with the, the trainer that's going to do the like special? <laughs> I love watching it. Aww. And that's because I, I can engage with just how motivating and fun that kind of training is. And that's going to motivate you, Alice, for life. And there's going to be continual things along this journey that will motivate you. And they're very rarely going to be based around your aesthetics. And so this is what I try to tell people. There's nothing wrong with using the kindling. We have to use the kindling. And it will get your fire started, but it won't keep it burning forever. And that kindling will run out. And so if you're only there for the aesthetics, your motivation to train will really start to fluctuate and then you'll need other aesthetic goals and then over time you're running out of these things the body's aging the body's changing we're going through shifts we're going through breakups those things can impact our behavior and so if your motivation to train is based solely on this little kindling you're gonna go like this you're gonna go up burn and out. down right yeah. you're gonna burn out and the problem with burning out as well this and that fluctuation 
is that you start to lose trust in yourself and you start to develop low self-efficacy. And that is where we really have a problem because psychologically speaking, not to be alarmist, obviously it's fixable, but it's like if we start to get into that space where we have a low sense of self-trust, then we have to unravel that self-trust. And that takes time and it takes longer each time because you have to build it back. And so I just say, try to have both so that you don't fall on and off this wagon. Couldn't have thought of a better analogy myself. That was so excellent. And I think it pretty much does summarize, you know, the fact that we have to be realistic about what drives people to move in in this country, particularly, you know, and, and across the world. We can't deny the fact that these people exist and that they have that, you know, as you say, kindling within them that motivates them to get up and go to the gym. But also we can say to those people, but hey, here's all this other exciting stuff that's also going to help to keep that stuff going for so much longer. And I think that's that's such an excellent way to describe it. And actually, like you touched on some um, psychology stuff there, which is sort of woven into in and out of your um, of your vocabulary. And I think that it would be really nice to hear a little bit more about what made you take the shift to go back to university and study psychology. You know, to everyone outside of your kind of world, it was like, she's smashing it. She's this incredible trainer in yoga and she's doing so well. And obviously, like, I guess this is another just notch on your, on your um, level of expertise, but it's also like it's taken you away from maybe doing the stuff that you love and has been a really different and I guess intense shift of focus. So what made you decide to do that? It's honestly, it's always been on my list um, for a number of personal reasons. I, I mean, I really, I wanted to be, even when I was a gymnast, I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, and that was because I had, you know, certain tumultuous experiences in my childhood that made me, and I, you know, it was pushed into like child counseling for various different reasons. And, and when I sat in those child counseling sessions, I remember thinking like, <laughs> I was like four or five years old, but looking at these counselors thinking, I understand why you're asking me this question but it's not the right question to ask or you need to go deeper. Or And it was just like this thing that I felt like such a strong calling to become a psychologist and I thought I wanted to work with children. Now, I may well still do that, but um, I, that, that idea got put on hold, obviously because of gymnastics, dance, performing arts. I was kind of like, okay, well, yeah, maybe I'll come back to it one day. At 19, I attempted to do it again or or. or to relive that thinking, okay, I'm super stressed. There were a couple of health things that were going on with me that were like, is this physical or is this mental? So I went to try and do it. But at 19, like no job, trying to be a performer as well, like it just was not the right time. And I really didn't feel like I had the maturity, the life experience to handle that degree. So I, again, chose life instead. So I chose to get a job and, and work and I worked in an office and had that lifestyle. Then fast forward to being a trainer and I've had several experiences where, you know, I've worked with like some of the top athletes in the world and they have like chefs, they have massage therapists, they have incredible personal trainers and coaches and exercise physiologists working on their body. They are at the height of their physical capacity, right? And yet it didn't matter how good their team was if they were struggling mentally, emotionally, in their relationships, their physiology, their performance would diminish. And so I was like, there is something going on that we're not paying enough attention to. Yes, we have like psychologists, but we don't have psychologists that have experience in how, well, there definitely is, sorry, that I take that back, but it's like, it's not in the mainstream conversation. And I actually think my hope with this is to really try to amalgamate and bring together the, the psychological and physiological in, in mainstream fitness conversation because it's so impactful. And I guess that was the that was one of the things that prompted me. Another thing was like <laughs> just having so many interesting experiences in my own life, you know, in relationships in particular, terrible breakups. Um, I know you and I have had our fair share of just god-awful relationships and <laughs> thankfully it feels like we're out the other side. It feels like <laughs> we're getting there. But, yes, I know, gratitude every day. But, um, you know, those things really impacted my physical health that, and I couldn't out-exercise them, if that makes sense. I could try and I tried real hard. You know, I was like <laughs> really trying to train, really trying to put my heart and soul into everything to distract myself from the pain of those relationships and those experiences. And eventually 
they caught up to my body. And so, you know, I, I broke out an intense acne. I had like all kinds of, that doesn't mean that all acne is because of that, but it's like all these physiological reactions were happening in my body that could not be attributed in any way to the lifestyle that I had on paper, because on paper it looked like, well, she eats well, whatever that is. She trains hard. She doesn't drink. She doesn't smoke. She doesn't even take recreational drugs. Like there is nothing going on for her that would be the answer that we might be able to pin on these physiological things going wrong. And yet I was physically in the worst state and I was mentally really in a terrible state. So I was like, you know what? I just, I think I have to do this and try to bring this to the mainstream conversation a lot more. And you know what? I think that, um, we have not yet tapped into the synergy, I think, yet between that mental, physical um, kind of crossover. And just last night, actually, I was sat on a panel with a neuroscientist. Holy moly, she was incredible. Uh, and she really was just, you know, her whole message was like, the physical is important. The mental is important. There is no hierarchy when it comes to those no. two things. In fact, if anything, we should be talking about them in, in yes. equal amounts yes. and really allowing ourselves to, and, you know, actually just picking up on one thing that you just said, which I think really brings it home in, in, in a realistic way is, and you were talking about the pain that you experienced in the breakup, you described it as a, like a physical pain. And it's like the, the trauma that we experience often comes out in a physical way. You know, I know when I think back to the most painful times of my life, it was physical panic attacks. It was um, having terrible headaches. It was lack of focus. Like it's never just in the brain as we kind of think mental health stuff is. It's, it's, It's physical symptoms. And, you know, like the... The way we exist in this country, I think, in the health and wellness space, it's like the nutritionists do nutrition and the psychologists do psychology and the personal trainers do fitness and this person does this and that person does that. And we're so segregated and so scared, I think, to just allow levels of um, synergy and crossover and and cross-communication because the reality is that when we all start to talk together, that's when the best stuff happens. But, you know, it's still yet to happen. And I think it's so exciting to see that you are someone really, I guess, just treading the path gently to be doing that in a really meaningful way. And I think that's great. And I actually think that I wanted to pick up on on something that you've spoken about there and maybe not just necessarily romantic relationships, but when I was watching your stories from the weekend of um, you giving a talk on relationships, Mm. I was so intrigued to hear more about this. I think that, you know, I, I was speaking on this panel last night and I spoke about how, you know, we are more, co- more connected than ever, but lonelier than ever as, as humans. And we are living in a world where we have instant gratification when it comes to feeling connected to someone. But at the same time, we have lost our ability to connect in a deep and meaningful way. You know, I'm massively generalizing here, but you know, whatever. Um, one of the things that I would love to hear you talk about is meaningful relationships and then being, I guess, we know they're a pivotal part of good health. We know that human connection is so crucial to our well-being. And I guess from your talk that you were giving on the weekend, can you give us maybe your top level things about how we can really invest in making sure that the connections we have in life, whether they're romantic, platonic, family, whatever, um, are meaningful ones that can improve our health and well-being as a result? Yeah, Yeah, sure. I mean, it is profound. I think it's like we hear about it And it kind of can wash over us. I mean, I certainly wanted to ignore the evidence because I was like, I mean, exercise variables I can control, food variables I can control, I can't control other people. And so I didn't want this to be the case. But basically what the talk was about was our relationships more important than exercise for our physical health. And what appears to be happening in the evidence (laughs) is that... I don't like to speak in black and white, right? Like I don't want to say, yes, it is, because obviously not in every case it it is more important, but perhaps it's more important than we've been giving it credit for. And it's perhaps just as important as our physical exercise or nutritional uh, nutritional endeavors more than we would think because it actually impacts not just our psychological state but our physiological state. So I I presented three pieces of evidence. One of them was um, the, uh, the Harvard study of adult development. Have you heard of this one? This is the longest one. Longest study um, that they have in history, a longitudinal study. So we're looking not just cross-sectionally, but like over time. And basically their aim was to determine what 
or is to determine because it's still going. Um, and it's been going since 1938. You've got over 700 men, their spouses and their children. Um, and so they've followed these people over time and they've asked them a series of questions and run a series of physiological tests. And they wanted to understand like what really uh, determines a happy and healthy life. What, what, what are the variables that really determine this? And what they found is that the most profound predictors of, of health and wellness um, and physiological health are uh, the quality or perceived quality of our relationships. <laughs> Even when they're controlling for things like exercise and smoking and drug taking and alcohol, relationship quality is still the number one thing. And they found that there seems to be this isolated effect, basically, of our relationship quality. And when I say relationship quality, it's our perceived sense of it, right? Because it's like, we, it's really difficult to be like, that's a good quality relationship, particularly when it's an external person viewing. Yes, we have some markers we might be looking at, but it can be difficult to really observe that. So it has to be also their perceived feeling of whether they have a good relationship. Now, the other piece of there's two other pieces of evidence. Another one is attachment theory. And we look at like the fact that people with an insecure attachment style, particularly anxious attachment styles, tend to have poorer health outcomes. Um, now, you know, we know that like correlation does not necessarily mean causation. We can't say that if you are insecurely attached, you're going to have these physiological problems. But there is an interesting relationship between having those poorer health outcomes. And they, they talk about it to do with like the nervous system response, being more sensitive, being hyper-triggered. And then the final piece of evidence is basically that I looked at, I mean, there's so much out there, but basically was um, something called the social pain overlap theory, which basically looks at the fact that we experience physical pain in the cell, we interpret and process it in the same place we experience our social pain. So bullying or social exclusion in any way is felt and experienced and processed and alarms same parts of the brain as physical pain, which is kind of profound because that's like saying you put your hand on a hot stove and your body's like, get your hand off there. We have a sort of same internalized feeling when we're being bullied. We want to get out of it. And they Researchers kind of hypothesize that this is because social cohesion is so important for human beings. Like, we just would not be here today because as much as as humans, we like to think that we're like top of the food chain. We're only top of the food chain because we've been able to communicate and collaborate very, very well. Whereas like you put Chonavi next to a lion, like I'm not a superior <laughs> like being here, right, physically or and my ability to hunt or anything like that. If you put me in a group of other people, maybe we can outsmart the lion, maybe if we're like, mm. depending on who you mm-hmm. mean Bear Grylls, maybe. maybe Dave, <laughs> Dave Goggins, Bear Grylls. Like if I could pick the team, <laughs> then maybe. The ultimate could... <laughs> lion fighting team. Love yes, it. Exactly. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. And I just wanted to jump in there because, you know, I think that um, it's so interesting, this stuff. Like, this fascinates me. And I think it's because we have such a warped perception of what we should be doing. We are almost dogmatic in our approach to health and well-being in this country. I, 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 again, I hate to speak in generals, but I'm just going to do it for, for the purpose to. of the podcast. podcast. You have you to. Have to. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this idea that it's food is at the bottom, exercise is next, you know, yes. our, our uh, you know, neat and our, you know, <laughs> all of these things and, yeah. and this stuff that can, that can occupy such headspace and energy in someone's mindset. And, you know, when I think back to, and I think this is a really important point and I, and I hope that there's similarities between you. Well, I don't hope, but I, I, I'm sure there is. At my smallest, when my life was on paper, perfect I'm referencing a similarity to your kind of when you were like everything was great you know I was training I was eating well I was all of this you know I was at my most depressed most lacking in confidence most isolated which is the number one thing and I had zero ability to connect with other people I didn't make friends I was very guarded I I still have a difficulty of letting people in 
And I think it all stemmed from this idea that I was just like, none of that matters to me right now. The most important thing in my life is that I look great and that's the most important thing. And so my ability to then connect with people was terrible because I would just go into situations thinking, what do they think of how I look? I led with ego and with vanity. And I didn't lead with, who's this person? Do I like them? Can I connect with them? I led with, what do they think of how I look? And I genuinely believe that that my situation is not isolated in the sense that I know so many people who feel the same. You know, we're all existing in this world where, you know, we interact on such a transactional basis or we see people and we're not we're not deeply connecting basically we're not yeah. having dmcs anymore <laughs> around the water fountain you know when i think back to my time at school with my girlfriends and this is before phones and stuff were as popular as they are now you know there were cell phones but they weren't like that you know they didn't yeah. have all the stuff Social they have on now and, apps and things like that yeah you know we would still ring each other and be on the phone for an hour talking or you know we'd be on msn writing to each other or when we got together we just sit around chatting for hours and look i'm not saying that that stuff doesn't still exist i know like i speak to my best friend almost every day for an hour on the phone pretty much but i just think that we've lost our, our necessity, our urgent need to have deep, meaningful human connection. And the role that that plays, as you've just demonstrated in our overall health is so crucial that I think we need people like yourself really banging that drum to say, hang in a second, guys, all of that stuff's great, but this really fucking matters. <laughs> yeah, it really matters. And it's also about looking at like, well, how do you develop those abilities like what are the what are the mechanisms because it's all all well and good to be like all right relationships are important but it's it's hard to then say like okay well fuck I mean especially for me and and I you know I know you've just shared that story it's like I can fully relate to that that feeling of like like I mean I would leave a conversation with anyone with like deep anxiety of like like, did I upset them? Oh my God. Like running through my mind, every element of the conversation. This wasn't even just romantic relationships. This was like any experience that I have with anyone. I would always leave with a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, it comes from a place of ego, but it also comes from a place of like, you know, your heart's in the right place. Like you're, you're kind of hoping that they like you. You're hoping you're leaving a good taste because deeply you don't love yourself. You don't know how to even trust or engage with or connect with yourself so you know self-connection is really really important and it's one of the things that I think we have to connect we can really only meet other people at a level of connection if we're willing to connect with ourselves to that same level so we can only meet others at the level that we've met ourselves and many of us are resistant to doing that right so we have so many mechanisms for distraction and it's great. I love to scroll, <laughs> go on and doom scroll just like the, the, the rest of us, right? I love it. I will literally be like, you know what? I've earned a doom scroll and I'll lie on the couch and I never feel good. Like I never leave that doom scroll feeling good, but it's like this guilty pleasure that I go into. And, you know, there's other things. There's like Netflix binging. There's like a gazillion different mechanisms for distracting ourselves from actually connecting with ourselves and so this is again why I really brought these introspective practices to the like same level of importance as hitting your strength goals or weight training or any of them or cardio or whatever it is it's like if you're not getting to know yourself through reflection then it can be very difficult to to even build healthy relationships so I do think that's like a big step I think the second step is like, I mean, this is just a practical note, like something I learned, particularly in that phase where I was really struggling um, and I was in a really unhealthy relationship, romantic relationship, was that the friendship circle as well, and this is not to put a blame on them, but the friendship circle was very much about showing that they're all together having a good time. And a lot of, I mean, maybe they were. But I just found it really hard to connect if everyone was on their phone doing a story about how we were there. And so it was always about demonstrating here we are at this place and we're having a great time together and like, oh, oh, yeah. And so like it would be one person, they would do the story and then the next person would do the story. And then we'd have a 10 minute conversation about Instagram (laughs) or about content and then someone else would do it. And of course, like we're all working in the same space. So I understand that. 
But I just got to a point where I was like, can we talk about something else? Can we connect? Can we put our phones down and not do this? Because I, 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 what is it? And it really made everyone in that friendship circle very uncomfortable to not engage on their phones. But do you not think that's why so many of us are existing in the in the lonely spaces that we yes. are? Is because we can project and pretend and we can exactly. make out that life is great. We've got all these friends and everything's good. And we can curate this lifestyle that we want people to believe. But the reality is so different to that. That if we and, and this is where like it 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 and and I really love what you said about like that self-connection, because it really took so long for me to turn the mirror on myself and say, Everyone else isn't the problem, Alice. Turn the mirror back and look at yourself for a second, honey. Like, and and that takes that takes a lot of, I'm not trying to like, you know, polish my own halo here, but like it took a lot for me to recognize that, not that I was the problem, because I don't want to be so hard on myself like that, but that how I met people in relationships was my responsibility. And I cannot control how other people perceive me, but how I meet people in relationships is, is my responsibility. And I can work on that and I can be better at, at meeting people with that, that deep level of connection. And, and to, back to your point, sorry, of the social media stuff, like I would say now it is of utmost importance to me that sure, I sometimes take pictures of stuff that I'm doing and it's fun and we all like to do it, but most of the stuff that I now do socially, my phone doesn't really come out because I don't want to feed into this idea that everything's perfect. I've got all these great friends and then life is just wonderful. And let me just tell you how brilliant it is because I, I just don't, I, I don't feel that it's helpful to my it's audience, to anyone. No. And then it also means you're not in the moment, actually, truly. I mean, how can you be in the moment doing it and enjoying it and connecting if, if you're doing it? It's not to say, you know, don't share. And I, I get it. We, we also, we're, we're voyeurs. Like we love looking at other people's life. I love oh. it. I, you know, I love watching every We're also of- hardwired to compare. It's like yes. it's yes. within us to compare, to, to look at other people. It, like our brain thrives off people not doing very well. You know, we love to see people struggle. And Yes. Actually, I was re- was I reading or did I see someone talk about this psychologist or a neuroscientist talking about the fact that actually when, when we see someone else, when we have a downward social comparison, so social comparison theory suggests that like we have upward and, and downward social comparisons. And so an upward social comparison uh, is when we connect, when we perceive someone to be like in a better state than us. Um, and so an, too many upward social comparisons make us feel shit right? Like if we see everyone doing better than us, it starts to make us feel shit. But likewise, if we see a whole bunch of people doing badly, it also doesn't make us feel very good. It it can play on us in a different way. But with um, one of the things with downward social comparisons, when you watch someone else experience something painful, apparently, don't quote me on this, that it stimulates oxytocin. So there's some level of oxytocin in us engaging with someone else going through pain, uh, which is, you know, obviously a bonding hormone. And so it helps us to feel connected. So sharing painful experiences helps us to feel connected with other people. We feel this sense of relation. And I do think that a lot of, um, you know, I do think a lot of influencers like have picked up on this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and they, it's like the whole vulnerability, like yes, Olympics. Yes. <laughs> and so it's like, I'm going to share this pain so that, you know, because, and maybe they don't consciously do it, but I think that there's a subtle awareness that it breeds a lot of um, engagement in that connection. And that I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it because as you say, it's important to have like a balanced perspective in how people perceive your life. And so you don't want it to always look just like happy, jolly and, and whatever, but it's also beneficial for, for people to see that, um, I don't know, maybe we're moving into an era where it's actually nice to see someone else's joy. And like as an individual content consumer, if you feel um, triggered by someone else's joy, that work is with you. It's not with the influencer. <laughs> I, 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 I actually, I want us to zone in on this for a second. This podcast is going all over the damn shop, but <laughs> yes, we'll just sorry. go there. We'll go there because um, last week, one of my very, very best friends uh, was Glinda in the West End, I which for those it. of you that aren't musical theatre fans, it's like the creme de la creme of the musical theatre world. Like that's like you've, you've hit the jackpot. So I was beyond proud. Like I cried. I was there two nights in a row. Yeah. You know, it was like just so so emotional for me because I know how hard she's worked. And I had hundreds of messages from women 
or women exclusively saying, it's so wonderful how you celebrate your friend. It's so, you, it's so refreshing to see you celebrate like someone else's success. And I was genuinely shocked by how many people thought it was like relatively unusual to celebrate another friend's success in that way. And I really fundamentally believe that this weird sense of us, and I'm going to talk about, it's kind of like the Daily Mail generation (laughs) who thrive off drama. And actually this neuroscientist yesterday was saying that, you know, we, we like to see when people aren't doing as well as us. It actually feeds our ego. It's good for like, it's our, it, it feeds our brain. And one of the things she gave as an example, which I thought was so interesting was like, if we're losing followers, we will seek out someone who is losing more followers than us because in our brains, it tells us, you know, but I'm not doing as badly as them. And you can spread that example to anything else, you know, but I'm not doing as badly as that person. So I feel better about myself. It's almost like how we justify and make ourselves feel better about who we are and what we're doing. And I think going back to your point about, um, you know, social media and how we, a lot of people will feel triggered by people doing well or someone else's joy I think it's because it shines a light on themselves and makes them think hang on a second like I don't have that I want that I'm so rather than be like reacting in a positive way it's like oh no I'm gonna you know I'm gonna feel triggered by that and it's just it's really um it's really hard to train yourself I guess and and actually I'd love to hear it from a from a trainee psychologist perspective you know to get your brain to a point and I, and I do feel like I'm in this place but I still get it sometimes where you know you can be happy for other people's success and other people's joy because I'm going to be honest I think it's harder to be happy for someone's stuff like for the majority than it is to be like oh god yeah you know that, that was so predictable or like you know She's only got that because of X, Y, Z. Do you see yes. what I mean? Yes, it's much, it's kind of, it almost feels like it's a little massage for your brain to to tear them back down off the pedestal that you yourself have put them on. That's the thing that I find hilarious is we love yeah. to put people on pedestals, then we love to also tear them down. And that and whole so, process as well, like, <laughs> yeah, so, wowzers. It's so insidious. And the problem is, again, is that I do think it starts to eat away into our sense of self and, and who we think we are, where we think we're good people. And so it's not healthy for yourself actually to engage in that. However, that being said, um, I do, I do understand that jealousy is, I mean, look, I think this, whatever fact or something that I, that I will bring is more in relation to like partnerships, uh, romantic partnerships, but you know, jealousy is a kind of very important trait in relationships because it can help us to mate guard <laughs> which I'm very interested as you can probably tell I'm very interested in evolutionary psychology which some people disagree with because they're like there's no way for us to prove evolutionary psych but if you have confounding if you have other evidence sorry not confounding but if you have other evidence you can kind of like draw these inferences and so there's a big debate about whether it's valid or not but jealousy is a very human trait and I think we we have to in a way Um, I hate the word normalize, but let's just say normalize it within ourselves um, and accept it. And so it's not to necessarily say like, don't be jealous of that person, but it's to say like, recognize the jealousy and then see if you can in some ways turn it around and go, you know what, actually, if that person is successful, that demonstrates that I can also have that. And it's, it's not like... It's difficult because obviously there are circumstances in the world where, and unfortunately, you know, people in very underprivileged situations have access just through their mobile phone and social media to people who are in extreme privilege. Um, And so that can be very, you can't just turn that around and go like, you know, hello, I'm I'm living, I'm, you know, struggling to make ends meet and I have four kids and my husband's left me and I'm struggling, but I can have Alice's success too. Like, obviously that's, that's a difficult thing to turn around, but it's kind of looking at like, I know it's basically trying to alchemize it in a way by saying like, how can I see that person's success and use it as like an inspirational guide for my own journey? Perhaps I'm not going to have the same kind because my journey is different, but I'm, it means I am going to get there. Like whenever I see women now doing really well, it's, it's this thing in me where I'm like, fuck yeah, another one did it. 
another one bites the dust. You know what I mean? It's like, it's such a good thing because as women, we may know and understand some of those struggles that, that occur, particularly in a male dominated industry that it used to be in the fitness industry. So it's just nice to see that. But look, again, like I said, it's definitely um, a trait that was, uh, what's the word, like supported by evolution in a yeah. way. As because it like drives we're, us. We're hardwired. Drive. Yeah. yeah. To, be, to be, to compare, as you say, and to feel those feelings of jealousy. So I just say, like, if it comes up, it's okay. Because the worst thing that you can do is experience the jealousy. This is where it gets really insidious and complicated. Experience the jealousy and then kind of, like, wash it over with some positivity. But in reality, it's there. And your behavior gets funny. And this is how we end up in these sort of, like, fake situations where we're like, and then you're like, oh, hi, oh my God, it's so great. It's so great to see you doing so well. But like underneath, <laughs> you hate them. And so that's actually, I mean, look, we can talk about like the physiological effects of that, but that's like, that's some bad shit for your body. So yeah. I literally, I, God, I could talk about this all night and I'm sure you know I could. Kind of want to round up just talking about relationships because obviously this makes a big part of well, I was sort of stalking you in your talk that you did over the weekend, but I think that it's also something that we haven't necessarily covered on the podcast. You know, we've done a lot about training. We've done a lot about, you know, health and well-being and all that sort of stuff, but actually relationships is a big one. And, and so I, I'm sure there are people who are listening to this podcast who've heard all that we've said thus far and who are thinking, you know, like, okay, like maybe I have a handful of meaningful relationships in my life. Uh, I really want to work on developing better connections and, and relationships with other human beings. Like that's that's something that I would like to focus on. What is your advice for people that want to try and do that? Like I'm genuinely, myself included, <laughs> wanting to work on this, you know? I think that it is it is really, really important. And I'd love to hear maybe how you've navigated that, but also how you advise, how would you advise people to really set out on a journey of being like, right, I would like to have re- like meaningful relationships, but I don't want to go about it in a in a fake way. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to say three, three things that I would have done. And so some of them are a bit general and then others are very specific. So the first thing that I would say is for romantic relationships, become familiar with attachment theory and try to understand it without um, pathologizing anyone that you're in, in a relationship with. So it's not, it's not about learning attachment theory and then turning around and saying, um, you're clearly avoidant or like labeling someone else. It's more about and an, a, a way to understand yourself. Have you had anyone talk on the podcast about attachment theory? We haven't, but I have read the book. Okay. So you've read Attached. So um, that's great. I would definitely recommend starting with that book and just getting to know it, particularly if you happen to be in and out of relationships that always end up where they feel really intense at the beginning and then they come to a crashing halt. Either you personally feel like you're, you suddenly get the ick and you're just like, I've got to get the fuck out of here. And if you have those sorts of experiences, then I would also say, yep, look into it and maybe look into something along the lines of like an avoidant attachment style. Maybe, maybe, maybe not necessarily. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you experience that same intense love experience and then you find that the person you're hyper fixated, constantly ruminating on relationships all the time, even when you're in them, even when you're out of them, and you feel that anxiety about the person that you're with, whether they text you, whether they don't, that may be manifesting as an, uh, an, an anxious attachment style. And so understanding your attachment styles and attachment styles in general can definitely really help you to have a framework for understanding how your primary, uh, your relationships with your primary caregiver early in life may be um, affecting your romantic relationships later in life. So that's definitely one way, and that was the way that I began. But like I said, my second warning on that would just be don't over-identify with any attachment style because something that can happen is you can start to then think like, I'm anxiously attached. Am I ever going to get out of this pattern? It's never going to change. And the reality is we have neuroplasticity. We can change and we, we do change. So definitely lean into it with a pinch of salt. The second thing that I, I really did, and I'm glad we talked on jealousy because jealousy is a huge place for learning both in all relationships, whether it's sibling relationships, whether it's romantic relationships, work relationships. And I let jealousy be my guide, actually. And so if I have a moment where I feel jealous, 
I like to inquire further, whereas a lot of us try to push that shit down. Like we try to say like, I'm not jealous. It's fine. No. And we try to pretend to other people that we're not jealous. And it becomes, as I said earlier, really insidious. But instead, if you use jealousy as a point, you kind of like not judge it. Like, don't judge it. It's not a bad thing. It helps us. It's a guide. And so I use it as a way to kind of journal on things. So if I experience jealousy in my relationship or in a friendship or something like that, I journal, I write about it, I experience it, I formulate an idea, and then I bring it to that person. And I say, can I tell you something that happened to me the other day? Like, Alice, you told me about this, like, thing with this neuroscientist that you had. I'm like, oh, my God, it just, like, it made me go, like, oh, I feel really jealous that you did this and you got to meet that person. But actually, you know what, in the end, like I'm really stoked for you and maybe I can meet them one day too. And then you turn around and you're like, whoa, that was a really vulnerable share. And what happens when we have a vulnerable share between two people, it immediately makes us closer. And so you can do this in your partnerships. You can turn to your partner and say, I felt really fucking jealous about you talking to that coworker. Like, I don't know what happened. I know it's not your shit. Maybe you didn't have anything. Can we talk about it? But I always say, have the have the idea first. Like try to formulate your own rational ideas around it first before you bring it to the person. I think this immediate kind of dumping of your jealousy onto someone else isn't going to come out the way that you want it to come out. And then I think the third thing is, as I already mentioned, just like getting to know yourself better, you know, doing things like meditation and understanding why you don't want to sit there. <laughs> and understanding why what's preventing you from engaging in a relaxation practice because the stuff that's coming up is the stuff that not necessarily you need to ruminate on but it definitely at least respect to a degree mm-hmm. do you know what like this is this is literally my favorite kind of podcast because I came in with a completely different agenda that we were going to speak about and we've just gone woo <laughs> But I loved it. Like it's been so insightful. And I always know with you, you know, you are such a wise, wise, articulate person. And I could chat to you for hours. So I really do love that we went on this different trajectory and actually have spoken about some really valuable shit that I think is actually very helpful for where people are at right now. So thank you so much for your time. I'm sorry that we have to call it a day there, but otherwise I will carry on for the next sort of two hours and people are like, what the hell? She's still talking. Oh my God. Um, Thank you so much, Shona. I really appreciate it. And I'm very, very grateful to have you on. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate, review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time.